Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. Today we're picking up right where we left off last week with Matthew chapter 5 verses 33 through 48 in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be talking about vows, retribution, and loving your enemies. And just so we can hop right in here, let me recap the context of where we're at. We're still near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, right? So basically, so far, what Jesus has done is he's listed out the Beatitudes, and he's basically talked about the type of people that he's looking for in his kingdom, and he's basically laid down the character qualities that he's going to be producing in his followers if they follow the commandments that he lays out in the sermon. And then he talks about really what his view of himself is, how he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And where we currently find ourselves in the sermon is he is beginning to outline exactly what he means by that, right? So what does it mean to fulfill the law? Well, in order to know what he means by fulfilling the law, you probably need to know how to interpret the law correctly. And that's where we find ourselves, right? Jesus is basically listing five different examples of how you can look to the law and he's giving his interpretation of the law so that we can understand the interpretive lens by which Jesus views the Old Testament scriptures, right? And uh, what we covered last week were the first two examples of this, and today we're going to talk about the last three before he gets to his overall point throughout all of this, right? And so last week we talked about murder and adultery, and what Jesus is really pointing out in this section is that whenever God gave the law to the people of Israel, it was never simply about the letter of the law. And I think what he's doing is with each one of these things that he's listing out, he's going deeper and deeper in ways that we might not have immediately understood, right? And what I mean by that is this. He starts off with the sixth commandment about murder, right? Thou shalt not murder. And he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, but I say to you this. And I think the reason he starts with this one is because I think this is something that basically everybody would understand is true, right? Whenever the Bible prohibits murder, it's not suggesting that murder is the place where bad things begin. Obviously, murder is an extreme thing, and Jesus is highlighting the heart of the issue behind it, because everybody would agree that murder is extreme and that people probably began to sin a lot earlier than that. But then the debate would come to, well, where did it start, right? Did the sin begin whenever somebody threw the first punch? Or, like Jesus argues, did it actually begin whenever the person was thinking about this other person in an evil way, with an evil intentions, and was thinking that this person is a blockhead, this person is foolish, and just it was the anger itself that fueled the murder, right? Jesus is arguing that it's not simply about the physical actions, but it's actually the heart behind all of this that God was trying to address in the law. And so when he starts with murder, I think that basically what he's doing is he's helping everybody hop into his thought process, right? Because everybody can agree that obviously it's not just about murder. It's about something at a deeper heart level issue, right? And then he moved on to adultery. And I think this is one where we start seeing where there would be more of a divide because obviously we all agree that the sin doesn't begin whenever a husband or a wife commits adultery on their spouse, but whenever a person is contemplating adultery, that's very quickly the mindset they go into, right? Well, I thought about it, but at least I never did it, right? 
Well, Jesus highlighting, okay, <laughs> this is where we start getting into this ambiguity here because whenever our hearts get in the way, we start justifying certain things and we very quickly make it to where the letter of the law is the only thing that we deem sinful. But Jesus pointing out that sure, the letter of the law is the only thing that the courts can try you on, but God sees your heart. And so you have heard that it was said to those of old, do not commit adultery. But truly, I tell you, whoever has looked upon a woman with lust has committed adultery in his heart, right? So with each of these, Jesus is going deeper and deeper, and he's highlighting our own hypocrisies and our own different ways where we have failed to attain to the righteousness of God. And what he's ultimately doing through all of this is he's highlighting a greater form of righteousness. Because in the previous section, you'll remember what he said right? Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, this is a huge dilemma for the Jewish people that he's talking to because they viewed the scribes and the Pharisees as the righteous of the righteous. They were the top dogs when it came to living righteously. And Jesus says, if that's all you're shooting for, good luck getting into the kingdom because that's not enough. And so what Jesus is doing throughout his sermon is he is highlighting a greater form of righteousness, a righteousness that we have called redemptive righteousness, right? It's not a righteousness that is simply focused on not doing bad things, and it's not a righteousness that is simply focused on doing good things. It is a righteousness that is chiefly focused on producing good even in the midst of bad circumstances and producing on earth God's will as it is in heaven, right? That's going to make a lot of sense whenever you see how Jesus tells his people to pray, right? on earth as it is in heaven, right? That's what we are supposed to do. That's what redemptive righteousness is. That is what Jesus is calling us to. And so what he does with each of these sections is he's going to list out what the Old Testament commanded, and then he is going to interpret it and give his own authoritative command about the heart level issue behind this. And then he's going to give examples that people can apply in their day-to-day -day lives, right? So he's not simply talking about spiritual abstract realities. He's talking about very physical rubber meet the road places where we can actually begin to apply this in the here and now, right? And so that's really important for us to understand because a lot of the times people will look at the Sermon on the Mount and they will simply make it about like a spiritual thing. No, he's saying there are flesh and blood ways to apply this, but you have to understand the heart issue in order to truly understand the righteousness that is demanded by God. And so we saw that with murder and adultery last week. And now today we're going to talk about vows. We're going to talk about principles of retribution, and we're going to talk about loving our enemies. And then ultimately we're going to talk about the standard of righteousness that Jesus sets for his followers. So that being said, let's hop in. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 42. Uh, I'm actually just going to read verses 33 through 37 for right now. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of the evil one. All right, so what we saw with the first two um, 
sections that basically Jesus was addressing is that he was kind of working his way through the Ten Commandments, right? So he did uh, commandment number six, which is about murder, and then commandment number seven, which is about adultery. And then commandment number eight is about stealing, right? And Jesus didn't address that one, but some people have actually looked at the second part of the adultery thing, and they have actually seen how there is a connection between that one and stealing, right? Because uh, if you are committing adultery um, as a result of divorce, in many ways, it is like you are stealing another person's spouse, right? And so people have seen a connective tissue there, which would lead to number nine right here, which if you go look at the Ten Commandments, law number nine uh, or commandment number nine is about making false or giving false testimony, right? And so you can see how there is a connection here because Jesus, he's not quoting from the Ten Commandments here. He's actually quoting from another place in Deuteronomy, but it's talking about making false vows and how that's not a good thing. And ultimately what Jesus, I think is really addressing here uh, is not simply saying that you should never make vows at all, right? Uh, because if that is what Jesus was saying, um, well, then Jesus himself would actually break the law. Uh, later on, because there are times where Jesus does make vows and he does make oaths and God himself makes vows and oaths and promises and covenants throughout the entire Bible. And so I don't think that you can read these verses and think that Jesus is just ruling out the possibility of oaths altogether. And he's not annulling that. Instead, he is making a different point. And really, just to summarize this, what he's saying is that we should be truth telling people. Right, that is what we should be as his followers, uh, and I think you can understand this uh, by just thinking about how conniving and twisted we are as individuals. Right, <laughs> um, we are naturally liars, and I know that that sounds kind of weird, but uh, the name of this YouTube channel is now. Let's be honest, and so I'm going to be honest with you here. The human heart it inclines us towards deceit right? That's just kind of how we are. Uh, and maybe the best way to picture this is from back whenever you're a little kid, right? Uh, I can't even think of an exact scenario, but I know I've been in this place like a million different times whenever I was little, where I would say something to somebody and they would say, hey, you said this and you didn't do it. And then I would look at them and I'd say, but I didn't promise. <laughs> And all because I said those words, but I didn't promise, it was almost like a ha, gotcha moment where I was like, ha ha, you shouldn't have trusted me because I didn't promise it. And basically what I was saying was that my word is untrustworthy unless I make an explicit promise or oath to you, right? Or another thing that we do as kids, right, is we'll cross our fingers and we'll put it behind our back, right? So we say one thing with our lips, but because our fingers were crossed behind our back, we think that all of a sudden that magically annuls the promise, right? That's what we do as children. And nobody has to teach us to do that. We just naturally do it because our hearts are deceptive and we love deceiving people. And I know that sounds horrible, but it's true, right? Nobody had to tell you, oh, well, what you need to do is promise in order to be a truth teller. No, uh, by nature, I mean, <laughs> words should communicate truth. That is what we should do. But we're so sinful and we love hiding things, even in jest, right? Uh, usually whenever we're doing that as children, it's not like we have like these super heinous and evil world domination ulterior motives. No, usually it's just us joking around with somebody. But it does highlight an aspect of the human heart that isn't so pretty. We are deceptive people. 
I think that's what Jesus is addressing right here, right? Because the Jewish people, they would do that all the time, right? Especially in this culture, we have all this evidence of people such as even Pharisees and scribes, right? The righteous of the righteous, who they would try to weasel their ways out of a promise because they specifically did not make the promise in the name of God, right? So they made an oath, but the oath wasn't even like, like it was just an oath. Like, you know, like I swear on my mother's grave or something. No, they, they would swear on that, but they didn't swear in the name of God. And everybody knows that swearing in the name of God is the truest of all oaths. I think what Jesus is doing is he's just saying, why do we have layers of truth in the way that we speak? Rather, let your yes be yes and let your no be no, right? There might be certain occasions where it is important for you to make an oath or a promise, um, but if you have to live your life promising people things, that might suggest that you're not a truth-telling individual, right? I mean, like, it's one thing to stand across from your spouse at an altar and promise to never leave them. Death do you part. Well, that's because you're standing publicly and you're making this public oath. That is the appropriate time for this. But if every time you talk to somebody, you're saying like, man, I promise you that I ate breakfast this morning. Why? Like, obviously, this is an extreme situation. But if you're having to make promises about little things like that, people are going to immediately start scratching their heads because they're going to say, okay, why did you feel the need to promise that? Because it seems to indicate that you typically don't tell the truth because you're always having to do this. I think that's what Jesus is highlighting, right? If you have to give oaths for everything, it probably suggests that you're not a truth-telling individual and that's not the type of people that he wants in his kingdom. And so he says, Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. And so you have this Old Testament commandment where God told them, don't make false vows. And so you have Pharisees and scribes who take that commandment and they follow it to the letter. It says, fulfill your vows to the Lord. And so they said, okay, well, I don't want to make false vows to the Lord, but all other vows, well, you know, those are come and go. But if I make a vow in the name of God, I will never violate it. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they are following the law to the T, but Jesus is highlighting the heart behind the law. The reason why God said don't make false vows is because he values truth. That's ultimately what God was trying to highlight there. And so whenever you simply make this commandment in the Old Testament about promises made in the name of God, you miss the point entirely. So Jesus says to them, Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of God, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, right? So he says, it doesn't even need to be in the name of God, right? Even if it's in the name of heaven, or earth, or Jerusalem, right? Those are all lesser things, but they're still important, because guess what? Heaven, it might not be in the name of God, but it is his throne. And earth, it might not be the name of God, but it is the footstool of God. And Jerusalem... It might not be the name of God, but it is the city where God's king is going to come to dwell. And so what Jesus is highlighting is that all because you don't use God's name in your oath and all because you don't say like in the Old Testament where it says, as surely as Yahweh lives, right? That's a common uh, oath formula in the Old Testament. He says, all because you don't include that phrase in your oath doesn't mean that God doesn't hear your words, right? God hears your words, even if you're swearing by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, by your dead grandma, whatever you're swearing by, God hears your words. And even if other people 
only value certain oaths over other oaths. God hears your words, and he knows your heart behind them, and he knows the deceptiveness of your heart. And so if you are simply choosing what you swear by to indicate how truthful you're being, you're missing the point entirely, because God wants us to be honest. And so he continues, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, right? Another issue is that whenever you're saying, I swear by my head, you know, <laughs> he's pointing out, like, you're acting like you have a control over thing, over things that you don't have, right? How can you swear by your head? You don't have control over your head. God's the one who controls that. And so every oath you make has to be made in the name of God, whether you say it or not. Right? Because who ultimately are you appealing to whenever you're making this oath? Whenever you stand across from people in public and make this oath to your wife and you say, hey, I will love you, death do us part, you're making that oath before people, yes, but ultimately it's before God, whether you indicate God's name in there at all. Right? That's what Jesus is highlighting here. All of our words are heard in the ears of God, and therefore they should be treated with the same reverence. So he says, let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of the evil one. If you feel the need to justify your words by making promises, you've probably missed the point entirely. What Jesus is communicating is that his followers are to be dependable, honest people. If you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it right? And if you're not able to do it, you're going to have a good reason for doing it, right? It, like for not being able to do it, right? And you're going to be able to explain that to the people, right? You're going to be a truthful person that people can look to. And whether you made a promise or not, people don't have to worry about, ooh, I wonder if their fingers were crossed behind their back. That's not the type of people that Jesus wants in his kingdom, right? The people that Jesus wants in his kingdom have to be people who are engaging in a redemptive form of righteousness, where they're constantly seeking ways to add things into people's life, to be life-giving rather than life-sucking individuals, and that is rooted in truth, right? This is something that Jesus' brother is going to talk about a whole lot in the book of James, how words are super powerful, and how with the same mouth you can build somebody up or tear them down. Jesus is highlighting the exact same thing right here, and sure enough, James is going to say a very similar thing. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. You shouldn't need to make all these oaths, make all these promises. You should simply speak truth. And through speaking truth, you should be able to love well. Be consistent, be dependable, be honest. That's who we should be as followers of God. Moving on, verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anybody wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your garment also. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. All right, so these verses are probably some of the most misunderstood verses in the entire Sermon on the Mount, I would say. There's actually a lot of stuff in the Sermon on the Mount that people misinterpret. Um, but I think this is one of those places where people, once again, they think that Jesus is changing the standard of the law. But that's not what he's doing. Uh, and that's not what he's doing in any of the Sermon on the Mount, right? He's not abolishing the law. He's not changing the law. In fact, he even told people, if you even change one little tittle of the law, you're going to be least in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus' goal is not to change the law in any way whatsoever. His goal is to highlight what the heart of the law was from the very beginning. 
And so, whenever people heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right, you read this in the law, uh, basically, you have this standard for justice, right? If somebody plucks out your eye, you can pluck out their eye as well. Obviously, like, hopefully, <laughs> that's not actually happening. Um, but it's a standard of justice. And many times, how people would view this is basically um, as a license to go as far as possible because um, they they want justice, right? And so, if you pluck out my eye, well, therefore, I'm going to take you to court and we're going to pluck out your eye as well because we want everything to be just and we want vengeance and we want to enact everything for our own personal gain. But I think what Jesus is highlighting here is that they were misunderstanding why God put this standard there. Ultimately, the reason why God put that standard in the law was to highlight that the punishment could not exceed the crime, right? So what this law was actually doing was not giving the assaulted person a license to enact justice, but rather it was protecting the assaulter from facing too great a penalty, right? Because once again, the human heart is deceptive and this is something that we don't have to be taught. It is something that we naturally do from childhood, right? If somebody does something against us and it hurts us, we want to seek vengeance. But our definition of vengeance is not typically just vengeance. Typically, we like to go above and beyond. And if they pluck out our eye, we want to pluck out both of their eyes, right? If they slap us on the face, we want to punch them till they're on the ground and unconscious, right? This is how we naturally are. We want to one up in other people. And so this law was not given to give us a license to attack back. It was actually given to protect the person who did the initial assaulting so that uh, basically it was God keeping the people of Israel from a cycle of violence that eventually got so out of hand that they they end up burning the entire kingdom down, right? So he is allowing them to enact justice, but justice has to be just that. It has to be justice. And so if somebody plucks out your eye, the worst thing you can do to them is pluck out their eye right? You can't kill them for plucking out an eye. It has to be even, and that is the extreme limit. But the law was never saying that you had to do those things. That was just the standard of justice. And so if you wanted to enact justice in the law, that's what you would do. But ultimately what Jesus is highlighting here is that the goal that God was trying to highlight here and the heart behind God's commandment was that vengeance ultimately belongs to God. Right? And that's why God has to put this standard in place so that we don't go too far. And so if you actually understand that vengeance belongs to God, then maybe whenever somebody assaults you, your goal won't simply be to seek out justice by taking it out on them. Maybe in some weird, redemptive way, you'll seek justice by taking their punishment upon yourself. So he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Some people will look at this and they'll say, does that mean we're not supposed to resist evil in the world? No, no, no. That's not what he's saying right here. Ultimately, what you have to recognize is that Jesus, uh, in the examples that he's listing that follows, he's not talking about situations of violence um, that demand like self-defense or anything like that. Uh, he's not prohibiting self-defense. And there's other places in the gospels where he talks about the importance of self-defense and how you should defend yourself and those who you love. Right here, what he's talking about is situations of honor and shame, where somebody insults you and you have this burning desire inside of you to react and to counterattack and to one-up them. 
And he says, don't resist the evil person, right? Uh, if somebody is doing something against you and they are trying to harm you and they are trying to insult you, your natural inclination is going to, you know, to puff your chest up, lift your chin high and fight back. And he says, don't do that, right? Because that is your pride speaking to you. And that is your sense of honor speaking to you. And honor is not a bad thing, but defending your own honor is not as necessary as we typically think, because typically the reason we want to defend our honor is pride. And this is something I talked about in last week's video as well. There are so many Christian leaders that I have talked to who just feel this innate sense and this desire to defend themselves. And they feel that they need to force people to respect them. But if you're a Christian leader watching this, I want you to understand what Jesus is saying here. It is not your job to force people to respect you. It simply isn't, right? Jesus did not force people to respect him. He would speak the truth, he would love well, he would speak harshly, he would rebuke them, and he would he would tell them honestly, hey, one day I'm going to stand over you in judgment. But we can't say that to them, right? Because we're not going to stand over them in judgment. That's, that's Jesus. But Jesus is the prime example of embodying all these things. Whenever he said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, you have to recognize that every single thing he's commanding us to do, he himself did, right? He himself bore the reproach and he did not resist the evil person. Does that mean that he didn't call people out for evil? No, he did call people out for evil. But whenever they assaulted him and whenever they insulted him, he didn't feel the need to assault them and insult them back. If he insulted them and if he did verbally assault them, it was not because he was acting out of retribution. It was because he was calling out evil for being evil. He was never doing it out of a sense of honor or pride. He was doing it in a sense of truth. And for us, we need to be very careful because we often will do things in the name of truth, but really God is looking to our hearts and he sees we're doing it out of pride. I have a perfect example of this from back when I was in college. Um, there was this one um, guy who would go from college to college campus preaching, right? And I did not like his style of preaching. I thought that it was just not how the gospel should be represented. And even to this day, I agree that I was in the right, right? I did not like how this guy did it. And I thought that it was a terrible example of the love of Christ. Uh, and ultimately it would just be, their goal was just, I knew what they were doing. Their goal was just to draw in a huge group, right? And I remember my freshman year of college, I encountered this guy for the first time and in front of like probably hundreds of people, I went back and forth debating with this guy. And I think to this day, my arguments were better and everybody else seems to agree so. And even the guy who I was arguing with, debating with, he seemed to agree so because eventually he just got silent. He picked up his stuff and he left, right? I was so proud and I was like, yes, truth has won out in this day. But then it turns out that somebody had been recording that debate and they uploaded it on YouTube. And I came across that video probably a few years later, or maybe a few months later. And as I was watching it, I was really convicted because I looked at the things I was saying to this man and everything I was saying was correct. And everything I was saying was right. And everything he was saying was wrong. But I could tell that I wasn't doing it for the sake of preaching truth. I was doing it for the sake of defending my own honor. And I wanted to prove to everybody that I was the right one and that I was the one in the right. And every time this guy would say something against me, I felt the need to defend myself and to prove to him why I was better. I was in the wrong there. And even though I was presenting the correct arguments, I was doing it for the wrong reasons. 
And I recognize that. And now I rein myself in whenever I feel this desire to debate because I want to make sure that I am not violating what Jesus says right here. Because Jesus is saying, you don't have to force people to respect you. That is not your job. Vengeance ultimately belongs to God. Whenever God gave this commandment, he was limiting the amount of vengeance that you could take because oftentimes our human hearts try to surpass justice. And so he was saying justice is the limit, but there is another way. Rather than resisting an evil person, look at the examples he gives. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your garment also. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. This is some radical stuff right here. Just think about the implications of what Jesus is saying. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. All right, so if somebody's slapping you on the right cheek, that means that they're probably hitting you with the left hand or they're backhanding you with the right hand. This is insulting language, right? This is bad stuff. And Jesus says, turn to the other also, right? So he hits you and your natural inclination is to slap him back. But do you know what Jesus says to do? Turn him the other also. Well, why would you do that? So that he could slap you on that cheek. But wait, Jesus, <laughs> what? <laughs> he already did one thing against me and I want to do it back to him. But you're saying I can't do it back to him. Instead, I'm supposed to let him do it against me again. And Jesus says, yes. But Jesus, that seems horrible. That's like doubling the injustice upon me. And he says, yes. It is doubling the injustice upon you, but from another stance, it is justice. The first time he struck you, and that was injustice, and you are engaging in justice, not by returning the blow upon him, but by taking his punishment upon yourself. You see what I'm talking about when I say redemptive righteousness? And you might respond to this and you're saying, Jesus, that is ridiculous. If you go around doing this, people are going to treat me like a doormat. They're not going to respect me. They're going to think I'm a laughingstock. They're going to abuse this, right? If I'm just always turning the other cheek, then how are people ever going to take me seriously? And to this, I think Jesus would respond, do you know who you're talking to? Jesus is God in the flesh, right? He is the God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. The God who deserves all praise, yet will not force people to give it to him, right? The God who forgives people again and again and again, despite the fact that they are constantly rejecting him. In just a few years after he says these words, Jesus himself will literally be slapped on his cheeks. He will literally have his tunic ripped from him. He will literally have people put a wooden beam on him and have him walk down the street to a place he does not deserve to go. And he deserves all these other things. And he could force them to do all these things because he is the one who deserves praise. And they are wronging him and he is innocent. Yet he will bear the reproach. Why? Because it's what they deserve. And rather than forcing them to endure what they deserve, he's enduring it for them. And so if you're going to look at this and you're going to say, Jesus, this is not fair. Jesus, this is horrible. How could you ask me to take their punishment upon myself? He's going to respond and say, do you call me Lord? Do you believe in me? Because that's what I did for you. That was your cross that I died on. Those were your stripes that I bore. 
you had constantly afflicted me, you had constantly cheated on me, yet I bore your affliction and I bore your suffering. And so if we're not willing to go through this, he's going to say, then why do you think that I would welcome you into my kingdom? If you're not willing to follow in my footsteps, why would you think that you're going to receive the gift that I have to offer? It, it, that's, that's the standard, right? If you're not willing to engage in redemptive righteousness, why do you think you are going to receive the righteousness that he has to offer? Because ultimately, none of us are going to be able to fulfill this perfectly. And no matter how much redemptive righteousness we engage in, there's always going to be places where we lack. There are always going to be places where we could have produced good when there was evil. And there's going to be many places where we produce evil when there could have been good. We're always going to fall short. And that means that we are never going to meet the standard that God demanded. And therefore, we are never going to make it into the kingdom of heaven unless we receive a righteousness that comes not from ourselves, but from Christ. And he says... If you're not willing to follow in my footsteps, why would I give you that redemptive righteousness? That's ultimately where he's heading with the sermon, right? The end of the sermon, he's going to say, in that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, look at all the things I did in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me, you works of lawlessness. I never knew you. Because it's about knowing him. And those who know him will follow him. And those who follow him will become like him. And so if you look at this and your honor feels offended, good get rid of your honor. Accept the shame. That's the paradox of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so he continues with other examples. If anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your garment also, right? Obviously, you're not happy about it, right? It's not like anybody's excited to have their tunic taken from them. And he says, give them a garment too, right? Give them your underclothes. Bear the nakedness, right? He takes your outer clothes, give them the undergarments and walk home naked. That's fine. Get over it. This is extreme stuff. It's not easy. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. This was a Roman practice back in the day where Romans basically, like a Roman soldier, because they were basically in charge of Israel, um, they could come up to a Jewish person and force them to carry their baggage for a mile. And you can imagine how humiliating this was for the Jewish people. Because here you are hanging out with your children, taking them to one place, taking them to another place. I don't know, maybe you had somewhere you were wanting to go. And then your plans are interrupted whenever a Roman soldier comes up to you, throws their burdens on your back, and says, walk with me for a mile, Jew. As you were walking with them, each step reminded you of the oppression. Each step reminded you of the bitterness you feel towards them. Each step reminded you that you were not a free people, and that these people were taking advantage of you, and they were looking down upon you, and you were probably filled with shame and embarrassment, and you felt that lack of honor, and you felt that resentment building up inside of you with each step. And you can guarantee that every time a Jewish person hit that last step on that mile, they cast the burden down and said, I'm out of here. Jesus says, what if you went an extra mile? And I think if you just process that, you'll understand that there's a very pragmatic side to what Jesus is saying here. Because whenever somebody assaults you, they're trying to steal your shame, right? That's what their goal is. When they slap you on the right cheek, they're trying to insult you and they're trying to make you feel like the smallest person in the world. Whenever a person sues you for your tunic, they're trying to make you feel like the smallest person in the world. Whenever somebody throws their luggage on your shoulders and makes you walk a mile, they're trying to make you feel like the smallest person in the world. But by turning the other cheek, by giving them your garments, by walking an extra mile, pragmatically speaking, you're actually 
redeeming yourself, right? And you're actually restoring your own honor. And as these people look at you, who they were trying to make feel so small, as they see you take the higher road, and as they see you do the better thing, and as they see you sacrificially serve them rather than giving into this bitter resentment, you're the one who comes out on top. Ultimately, that's not why you should do it. You shouldn't do it for the pragmatic reasons, but at the same time, that is there. This is what the Apostle Paul will talk about later whenever he talks about vengeance belonging to the Lord and how whenever you refuse to enact vengeance, it's like you're burning heaping coals upon the other person's head. Because whenever they do this thing against you and they try to belittle you, their goal is to make you feel small. But whenever you choose the higher road and you serve them, they're the ones who end up left, they're the ones who are left feeling small because they want you to respond violently. It gives them that satisfaction, right? They insult you because they want to feel justified in their hatred of you. That's why they're doing this. And Jesus says, what if you were the one who put an end to retribution? What, were, what if you were the one who put the end to this cycle of violence? Because yes, the law allowed for eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but if everybody keeps plucking out one another's eyes, eventually the whole world will become blind. And if everybody's plucking out one another's tooth, eventually the whole world's going to be nothing but a bunch of hillbillies with no teeth. But what if you were the one who decided to put an end to the cycle? What if you were the one who decided to take the higher path? What if you were the one who decided not to simply do what was good and who decided not simply to do what was not bad, but what if you were the one who decided to take an evil situation and work it for good? What if you were the one who decided to engage in a redemptive form of righteousness where you served even this person who was trying to insult you and rather than enacting their punishment upon them, you took their punishment upon you, even though the law allowed you to slap them back. What if you took the slap they deserved and you allowed them to just hit you again? Right? What if you were allowed to sue them for their tunic back, but rather than doing that, you gave up your own tunic and you accepted the shame and you walked home naked because you were so committed to ending the cycle of violence? Think about the message that would send. Yes, you would have to sacrifice your honor. Yes, you would have to sacrifice your shame. But what you would be doing is engaging in the redemptive righteousness of God. And you would be planting little pockets of heaven on earth so that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is what Jesus is arguing for right here. So you have heard that it was said eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you, don't resist an evil person. If they slap you on the right cheek, turn the other also. If they sue you for your tunic, give the garment also. If they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks of you. Don't turn away him who wants to borrow from you. Rather than seeking your own honor, take the shame upon yourself. Rather than seeking vengeance, seek reconciliation. Seek to honor God. Seek to redeem this evil situation. And what this means, like, if you want to truly understand what Jesus is communicating here, you got to recognize that you can't simply do this by responding stoically to the whole situation. Because if somebody, you know, like, it, he's highlighting the mentality behind all this, right? If somebody puts their burden on your back and you're just trudging step by step through this, you're like, yeah, all right, you know what? I'm going to go an extra mile just to prove you wrong. 
that misses the point entirely, right? At that point, what you're doing is you're just an oppressed person who is playing along with this victim mentality, and you're not actually engaging in redemptive righteousness. Instead, whenever the person puts that baggage on your shoulder, you don't look at them and say, fine, I'll go with you not just one, but two miles, because that's what Jesus said to do. Instead, you'll say, I would love to serve you. In fact, I won't just go one. I'll go two with you if you don't mind. And you've got to do this in a joyful manner that will stun the other person. And they realize that you're not doing this to prove a point. You're not doing this to exalt in your victimhood. You're doing this because you have a God who takes evil situations and works them for good. And you serve a God who is taking our broken world and will one day restore it. You serve a savior and a Messiah who comes to us in our evil place and redeems us and lays his life down for our sake. And because you serve that savior, you are willing to participate in his kingdom. That is the message that Jesus wants us to send. And it's by doing this that we will be the salt of the earth and the lights of the world, because every single thing we do will be engaging in redemptive righteousness. Whether you're sitting in the classroom and one of your fellow classmates insults you, and you naturally have this inclination to respond with a greater insult or an equal insult so that they're equally as embarrassed as you are, you just stay quiet and you laugh along with it and you bear the reproach and you bear the shame because that's what Jesus would do. And that's what Jesus did right? That's what he is arguing for here. And it is absolutely amazing. Rather than seeking justice for ourselves, we just seek justice in general. And we realize that there's a way to seek justice that doesn't mean inflicting further evil upon the other person. You can seek justice by inflicting that evil upon yourself, right? That's exactly what Jesus did, right? We owed God a debt we could not pay. And in order for there to be justice, the debt had to be paid. But what he did is rather than demanding that we pay the debt, he paid the debt for us. This right here is the gospel message. And so if it offends you, good. It is offensive. And it means sacrificing your honor and taking shame upon yourself. And that's fine. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. None of these are easy. But it's what Jesus demands. And if we don't strive to do this, he says we have no place in the kingdom of heaven. Because if we are following a king who does this, then we, as his citizens, should do the same. But then he moves on. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is some good stuff. So right here, um, he continues quoting, and he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The first part of that is a quote from the Old Testament right? Uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? This is a quote from the scriptures. The hate your enemy part, though, is not a quote from the scriptures. This is just more likely a teaching that was being taught at the time, right? Okay, well, if you love your neighbor, that means you hate your enemy. But Jesus is going to say, no, that's not what you're going to do. Rather than creating two groups, one to love and one to hate, what if we loved everybody? 
And one thing we need to highlight here is that Jesus does not negate the possibility of having enemies, right? He doesn't eliminate the category of enemy altogether and say that enemies don't exist. He says, no, enemies exist. There are going to be people who do not like you and who are opposed to you and who are persecuting you and are doing all these evil things against you. Those people will exist in the world. So if you think that you're a Christian and you should just get along with everybody, no, it's not going to happen, right? There are going to be allies and enemies in the world. And your temptation is going to be to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And you might be able to get away with this because the only thing that the law explicitly says is love your neighbor. And so if you're following the law to the letter, you might say, ah, well, it only says love my neighbor. And therefore, I guess I should figure out who my neighbor is, which ironically is something that another person will come up and ask Jesus later on in the gospel, right? Who is my neighbor? <laughs> and he'll share the good Samaritan story, right? Because Samaritans were usually viewed as enemies. <gasps> your neighbor is anybody, right? So a person could look at the law and they'd say, well, it says love your neighbor. And that means that you're supposed to love these people in particular, which must mean that there are other people that you're not supposed to love. Hmm, I guess I'm supposed to hate my enemies, right? That's one way to interpret the law. But the correct way is Jesus' way. And he says the reason why God said to love your neighbors is because he wanted you to love everybody, including your enemies. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. And you can say, okay, well, Jesus, hold up. Are you just adding this to the law? right? Like, is there any way that we could have known this just from studying the scriptures? Well, I think he would respond by saying, I think you know this just by the human conscience in and of itself, but yes, you can learn this from the scripture as well, right? Um, but just let's start with the human conscience, right? Think about any time you've watched a movie and somebody does something nice for somebody who did something evil to them first. We're immediately touched by that. And we look at it and we're like, wow, that is a really great individual. In many ways, that person in that movie or book is functioning like the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Because you look at them and you're like, wow, they stand out because this person did this evil thing against them. And rather than engaging in bitterness and responding with hate, they responded with love. And that's amazing. So the human conscience testifies to the fact that that is a good thing, even though if you just think about it, like it goes against the principles of justice. <laughs> right? If this person is opposing you and they're persecuting you, they deserve to have their eyes and their teeth plucked out. But Jesus says, well, no, the human conscience testifies to the fact that there's something beautiful whenever somebody engages in redemptive righteousness, whenever somebody loves somebody who is evil to them. But if you go look at the scripture itself, you see this throughout the scriptures. Look at the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, right? His brothers are so terrified whenever they meet with him again when he's in Egypt because they have done all these evil things to him, right? First off, they were going to kill him, and then they ended up prolonging his suffering by selling him into slavery in Egypt. And now that he's the one in charge, they're afraid that he's going to have them killed. And he forgives them at first, but then after their father Jacob dies, they're afraid that maybe it was all a sham, maybe it was an act, and maybe now he's going to enact justice. And then Joseph responds to them, and he says, What you intended for evil the Lord intended for good, that the lives of many might be spared. You can't look at the story of Joseph in Genesis and not say, wow, that is an amazing individual because he loved his enemies. Or look at King David, right? Think about when David was a fugitive on the run from King Saul, all the different opportunities he had to kill Saul, but he didn't. Whenever he was in the cave at En Gedi, 
And Saul was using the restroom, and David crept up, and everybody told him to kill him. But he said, far be it from me to touch the Lord's anointed. Or a few, t like just a little while later, whenever King Saul was asleep in the middle of his camp, and David had Saul's spear right there. And he said, far be it from me to touch the Lord's anointed one. And you might even look at those instances and think, wow, David was just putting on an act. But then when Saul dies, David sings a song of sorrow, and he laments the death of the amazing Saul. And he is so sad and heartbroken by it. And we look at this and we realize that if David's a man after God's own heart, then apparently a man after God's own heart is somebody who loves his enemies. And this is what we see with the prophets whenever you go later on in the Old Testament, right? These people are in anguish over the people of Israel and the people of Judah, despite the fact that these are the very people who are persecuting them and who are killing them. And they go down in history as the people who murder the prophets. Yet we look at the prophets and we can't help but admire them because they loved these people despite the fact that the people were always against them, right? There's a redemptive quality of righteousness that is demanded by the law, and that's what Jesus is highlighting. If you look at the law and you simply say, oh, I guess I should love my neighbor and therefore hate my enemy, you've misinterpreted the law because the law's demand was always that you love your neighbor and your enemy, right? But I say to you, love your enemy and don't just love them, pray for them even if they're persecuting you. And whenever you're praying for those who persecute you, I'm not saying, dear Lord, they persecuted me. I pray that, um, you know, like there's that one song, Pray For You. I don't know if you ever heard that. It's a really funny song. Go look it up. <laughs> it's about this guy who, um, he says that he's praying for his ex-girlfriend, but he's praying for all these horrible things. Uh, like he's praying that her brakes go out when she's going down a hill and stuff like that. It's a really funny song. But Jesus is going against that. And that's the whole point of the song, right? The whole point of the song is that the guy misinterpreted God's call to pray, right? Pray for those who hurt you. Okay, well, I'll pray for bad things for them. Jesus is saying, no, pray for those who persecute you. Pray that they will find the love of God. Pray that God will bless them in a weird way that convicts them for what they've done. Just pray that they will know love in their life, that they'll know joy, that they'll know peace, even if they take those things from you. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Notice the end effect of this. If you love your enemies, you will be sons of your father who is in heaven. Well, it seems like that it's a prerequisite, right? This is an element of what it means to live by faith, right? Because these aren't easy things. You don't naturally want to love your enemies, but it's what we do because we love Jesus. For God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. His point is that God doesn't make a distinction between the good and evil person, right? Yes, he has a standard of righteousness. And when it comes to judgment day, he will judge between the good and the evil. But during the days of this earth, the rain falls on both the good and the bad people alike, right? The sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? God does not show favoritism in how he's treating people in this life. And therefore we shouldn't either. We shouldn't be nicer to those who we consider our neighbors and meaner to those who we consider our enemies. We should treat everybody the same because that's how God does it. If God doesn't show favoritism, then neither should we. Despite the fact that there are a bunch of people who reject God and there's a bunch of people who believe in him. And honestly, between the two, sometimes God will actually shower favor upon the wicked people and he will allow the righteous people to suffer. Right? So if anything, maybe we're called to an even higher standard and we're called to be extra kind and extra loving to our enemies because that's what God does. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you do, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not the Gentiles do the same? What he's highlighting here is that so often we feel this sense of satisfaction in basic human decency. And this is something that, once again, I think our churches are failing to comprehend because I have talked to so many Christians who, like, they'll talk about, like, just, like, embodying the love of Jesus. And they're trying to say this in a humble manner. I'm not, like, really trying to dig at them. I think that we've just done a bad job in our churches of teaching them this. But they'll be like, well, how can I show the love of God to people? And they're like, well, just smile at them when you walk down the street. And I'm like, really? Is that it? right? Just smiling at them when you're walking down the street, that's called being a decent human being. And that's what Jesus is arguing right here, right? <laughs> He's like, okay, if you only love those who love you, like you're not any better than a tax collector, right? Everybody does that. Everybody loves people who love them. If you only greet people who greet you, and if you only greet people who you consider family, <laughs> you're no better than a Gentile, right? You don't need the law of God to tell you to love people who love you. That's what we naturally do. We're naturally nicer to people who are nice to us, right? We naturally greet people who we're closer to. You don't need the Old Testament law to tell you to do that. And so if you're looking at the Old Testament law and it says, love your neighbor, you've got to ask yourself, what was God trying to highlight here? Because he wasn't like, usually the reason why commandments have to be given is because we don't naturally do them, right? They're to keep you in check and they're to highlight God's standard. If you naturally did it, he wouldn't have to command it. And so if you're saying, oh, love your neighbor means love those who love me, you've missed the point because everybody does that. Even tax collectors, the sinners, <laughs> they do it. Even Gentiles, the pagans, they do that stuff. The Jewish people were set apart unto God to be the salt of the earth and light of the world. And so if God said, love your neighbors, then he must have meant that they were called to do something they didn't naturally do and they didn't naturally want to do. And that meant loving your enemies. It means greeting people who hate you with joy in your heart and loving them and serving them and taking care of them and being the good Samaritan, right? That's what Jesus is saying the law was calling us to from the very beginning, right? These are not new teachings and these are things that you could perceive if you read the law closely. However, if you're a scribe and a Pharisee who is just going to quote scriptures out of context and who's going to be legalistic about it, you're going to miss the point entirely. And that's what Jesus is working against here. And then he leads to verse 48, which is like his mic drop moment with all of this, where he highlights the true standard of righteousness that is necessary if you want to make it into the kingdom of heaven. And I hate to break it to you, but it is a standard of righteousness that we cannot achieve. He says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And what he's highlighting here is that these examples that he's listed are ultimately things that we can't fully achieve in this life. Yes, we are called to try to embody it. And yes, we are called to do it as much as we can. But ultimately, we can't, right? Because yes, it doesn't just start with murder. It's about the anger in your heart. But I so often let that anger out. And yes, I might want to contain it, but I'm not perfect, right? Yes, it might not just be about adultery. But that lust... Sometimes I gaze on that woman and I enjoy it and I allow myself to enjoy it. And no matter how much I don't want to enjoy it, I allow myself to do it because I am a sinful human being and I'm imperfect. Yes, it's not just about making false vows. It's about being an honest person. But even as a person who runs a channel called Now Let's Be Honest, there are times where I am not as honest as I should be. 
And even if my yeses should be yeses and my noes should be noes and I'm wanting to do that more and more, there are times where I am going to fall short. And yes, it is about turning the other cheek. And yes, it is about loving your enemies, but ultimately we're not going to do this perfectly. Yet Jesus is highlighting that the standard that the law demanded was never something that could be achieved by human effort alone. It was always about the righteousness of God. But you've got to realize that God is the only standard of righteousness that exists, right? It's not like there are lesser standards of righteousness. This was a discussion I was having recently with one of the guys in my discipleship group because he was asking me, he was saying, well, hey, doesn't it seem kind of unfair that God would ask the people of Israel to follow a law that they could never fully obey? And my response to him was that the only reason that is unfair is if righteousness is subjective, right? If righteousness is like a thing that you can move up and down, then yes, that's unfair because God probably should have asked everybody, like he should have given them a lower standard to achieve. But righteousness isn't subjective. God, by his very nature, is the foundation of what is righteous. He is the banner holder. He is the standard of righteousness. And righteousness, like anything that falls short of that, is unrighteous right? It doesn't matter whether you have murdered 3 million people or whether you have stolen a lollipop, you have failed to live up to the standard of like God's righteous standard, right? And that's what Jesus is highlighting. That's what the law was meant to highlight. It was meant to highlight that you can't be righteous in and of yourselves. And until you come to recognize that, you have no place in the kingdom of heaven. And in order to truly recognize that, you have to understand righteousness properly. And the righteousness demanded by the law is not simply an action-based righteousness. It is a righteousness that flows from the heart. And that heart has to be like David's, one that is shaped after the heart of God. And God's heart is a redemptive righteousness. He steps into a broken world and produces redemption and restoration. And in the same way, followers of Jesus should embody that, that redemptive righteousness. And they should follow in the steps of that future restoration. And we should try to plant little pockets of heaven here on earth while recognizing that we will never ultimately achieve that standard. Because once we have erred once, we have failed to achieve that standard, right? We have failed to get there. And so now what Jesus is doing right here in verse 48 is he's alluding back to Leviticus where it says, you shall be holy as Yahweh your God is holy. He's alluding back there, but he's heightening the standard and he's pointing out that we cannot do this. And so you've got this question being left here where you're saying, okay, well, here's the righteousness we're called to. And as his followers, we are called to participate in it, but ultimately I'm never going to achieve it. So what do I do? And that's the question that we're left with at the end of verse 48. We are called to live in maturity and we are called to be mature as our heavenly father is mature, but ultimately he is perfect and we're never going to achieve that. And so while we do participate in this redemptive righteousness, ultimately our righteousness before God has to come from somewhere else. And so that's a lingering question we're going to be looking for the answer for as we read through the gospel of Matthew. And if you're a Christian watching this, you ultimately know where that standard is going to come from, right? It's going to come from the cross. Jesus himself is here to fulfill righteousness. We've already read that language in the gospel of Matthew. And so as the story unfolds, he is going to be the righteousness that we need. And then once we've received his righteousness, we can more fully embody this righteousness in our day-to-day -day lives. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in. And I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. 
Until next time, I've been David Tate, this has been Now Let's Be Honest, and I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.